Welcome to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you haven't joined us before, we're passionate about all things internal medicine and helping you become the best tech you can be. We'll be discussing interesting internal medicine diseases, how to work closely with pet parents, and how to become the go-to tech in your practice. Now, let's start the show. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you for listening and making commitments to your learning. We hope that you are all doing well in November, which is crazy, November of 2021. We're your hosts. I am Yvonne Brandenburg, joined by Jordan Porter. Hello, and then this week, we're joined again by the amazing Ed Durham. Hello, Ed. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Uh, hopefully you guys know who Ed is at this point, but just in case you're for some reason jumping into the cardio uh, series this week, uh, Ed Durham is has his CBT, his Lat G, and his VTS in cardiology. So he's he's super wicked smart in cardiology, which is why we asked you to join us <laughs> for our cardio series. Um, so definitely check out which. Which episode was that? It was the first in the cardio series. Yeah, cardio basics part one. Yeah. So definitely check that one out where we go kind of in depth on all the amazing things Ed's done in his career. <laughs> so uh check that out. Um do we have any do we have any housekeeping stuff this week? Um, not really, just another reminder if you're listening to this quote unquote live the week that it goes live. Um, our membership site is still doing the 20% off with the code vet tech 20. Um, yeah, that is through November 14th, 2021. So this is going to be the last week of that announcement. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, so be sure that you kind of lock that deal in because we do have big things coming. We're not going to spoil it just yet, but we have big things coming for the membership site. Um, so if you want to be involved in cool new changes that are coming to the membership site, definitely lock in your price now. Um, oh, other than oh, that- oh, one more, one more thing. Like, so I'm excited because was it Friday? Cause today's Sunday. So day before yesterday, yeah. uh, Jordan and I recorded an episode with Vet tech cafe. So Jeff and Dave, and that goes live on the 14th as well. So if you guys haven't listened to Vet Tech Cafe, definitely check them out. We've mentioned it a few times on this podcast. Um, Ed's also been on on Vet Tech Cafe, um, so we've, we're now all alumni. <laughs> um, so definitely check them out. Uh, it's it's fun. I like listening to that podcast because they talk about the perspectives on you know our veterinary profession, and they talk to people in all different kind of like niches of veterinary medicine. So that's pretty cool. So definitely, definitely go check it out. So, um, thanks Dave and Jeff for, for having us on. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. All right. I don't think we have questions to be answered. I think we're good there. So I think we're good to dive in. All right. Where would you guys like to start? I, I, I will say one thing about Vet Tech Cafe. I loved it. Those guys yeah. are awesome and I love what they do. And I think that our profession is simultaneously at the best place it's ever been and potentially the worst place it's ever been. And, <laughs> yes. and I, oh my God, I agree with you. And so I many say ways. that because there's so much opportunity out there right now yeah. um, as a veterinary professional, but it is getting really tough. There's not enough people to go around. COVID really hit everybody hard. I think yeah. that. You know, I got a, a message from my sister who has a cat that needs to get seen and she can't get an appointment with her lo- local vet for a month. And it's not an emergency, yeah. but I, I think that the whole, we're all struggling a little bit, but yet there's never been more opportunity in the pro- profession. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And And Jordan and I, we've talked about this too, is you know, our, I think all three of us probably, our goal is to increase the longevity of technicians Mm -hmm. uh, in our profession, because, because there are so many amazing things that are, that are possible. And so, 
Yeah. Well, and it's the, uh... so weird for me because I look around and I realize, well, I realized it when I went to the IVEX conference, I'm such an elder statesman. I mean, how many <laughs> right? how many vet techs do we know that are 60 that are still actively working in clinics day mm-hmm. in and day out? It, it's a minority, unfortunately. Oh, so yeah, you're yeah. very much a rare breed where like just the amount of time you've been in veterinary medicine, let alone the fact that you're still in veterinary medicine. Yeah. Yeah. And I and I realize that. And I hope that we can inspire more people to keep this as a longer profession than people seem to want to do sometimes. And I understand it. I I understand because it's, it's physically, it's a very demanding profession. It's emotionally very demanding profession. Um, I think most of the technicians I know that end up leaving the profession do so because of some physical ailment or injury. They Mm -hmm. just can't get down on the floor and wrestle an 11 month old German shepherd anymore. And I, boy, do I understand that feeling. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, I think that what that tech cafe is does is really good at is looking at options for people, right? And seeing places that you maybe didn't even realize were an option to to help with that longevity. And yeah. So I mean, I think it's gonna be a continued conversation and which is great. I, I, I love that they, I love that they have opened those conversations, which um, is a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, I guess moving forward this week, we're going to be talking congestive heart failure and we touched on it a little bit during our basics episodes. Um, but we're going to go into a lot more detail. So Ed's going to kind of lead the way, but um, what is, what is the definite, the true definition of congestive heart failure, Ed? That is a brilliant question. <laughs> um, no, it actually is because it's not always intuitive. We think we know what it means sometimes, but do we really? So here's the definition that I like best. Um, and this was given to me by one of the cardiologists I used to work with. And what she said was heart failure is the inability of the heart to maintain cardiac output in the face of normal or enhanced preload. I think that's Mm. a brilliant definition because I might not be able to maintain cardiac output if I am volume depleted, right? So you have Mm -hmm. a hip hit by car or you have a hemoabdomen, they've bled a great deal and they uh, are, are volume starved. Well, they can't maintain cardiac output, but they don't have su- sufficient preload. The difference well, is that with, I was just saying, I think we need to, I don't know if we've defined it yet. What exactly is preload? Okay. That's a, that's a good, that's a good point. So preload, you can think of best as the volume available to fill the heart at the beginning of diastole. The sister to preload is afterload. And afterload is best thought of as the pressure that a ventricle has to work against to move blood forward through the system. And then I'll just throw in one more thing, which is contractility, which is pretty much what you think it is. How Mm -hmm. well does this heart squeeze? And when you get into the into the weeds of deep cardiac physiology, contractility becomes a little more complex, but for the basis of general un- understanding, it's pretty much what, what you think it is. The cool yeah. thing about those three factors, preload, afterload, and contractility, is they have a direct effect on your stroke volume or how much blood the heart ejects with each contraction. Mm-hmm. So... If I have a reduced preload, well, my heart doesn't fill very well. And if it doesn't fill very well, then it can't eject very well. So when we're talking about heart failure, congestive heart failure, we're talking about a heart that has not just normal, but sometimes enhanced preload, meaning they're Mm -hmm. actually over volume loaded. And 
that's where we start to see the, the congestive part of it is where does that volume go if it can't get out of the heart? So that's, that's probably the best working de definition I know of is the inability to maintain forward cardiac output in the face of normal to enhanced preload. So nice. you can have an inability to preload, but like technically a normal contraction of the heart, but because it's not preloading well. It's exactly. Not. Okay. So, so contract. So, so here's my thing, I guess, is I always assumed that with congestive heart failure, they couldn't, the contractility Squeeze. wasn't there. Yeah. Like it wasn't, it wasn't there, but it's not, the contractility can be normal. Just the contractility not because of the preload. Right. Generally speaking, you're you're right in that patients will most often have some reduced contractility mm -hmm. along with their congestive heart failure. However, okay. you can actually have instances where you can have normal or even hyperdynamic contractility and still be in heart failure. Mm. So mm -hmm. I realize it's, it's a kind of a comp complicated issue, but mm -hmm. so the, the best example of that would be the dog who suddenly ruptures a chordae tendineae on the mitral valve. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. what happens is the pressure in the left ventricle suddenly gets transmitted directly into the left atrium. The left atrium doesn't have time to dilate to compensate for that sudden increase in pressure mm -hmm. while the pressure then moves back up the pulmonary veins and you get pul pulmonary edema i see so contractility right. will still be fine yeah but the body but instead of moving forward failure. it's like right. it's moving backwards the heart can't move that blood forward in this Got case it. because of sudden valve incompetence hmm. right so and it, it's a it's a, let's say, let's say you have a heart and it normally ejects 100 mils with every contraction. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly you take out half of that dog's blood, blood volume. Mm -hmm. mm. Well, now it can only fill maybe 50 to 60 mils, right? Well, when it ejects, it's going to only eject 30. Mm. Because mm. even a normal heart only ejects about half of its volume. Interesting. Okay. So preload is, a, is an incredibly important concept in the realm of car cardiology. Because as I said, if you don't fill well, you don't eject well. So you can have poor filling and that will give you poor cardiac output. So that's a, that's a different problem than we're talking about with fairly straightforward congestive heart failure. That would be a scenario that the um, emergency room is going to see with dogs with pericardial effusion, say, because they have cardiac tamponade, mm -hmm. which effectively is a reduced preload. The, the blood cannot get back oh. to the right atrium because it's being squeezed by the pericardial effusion. So mm. those dogs come in with signs of low cardiac output, meaning tech tachycardia potentially fainting mm -hmm. to, to kick right because the contractility is normal because it's contractility not a muscle is function. normal right it's they, they, they're just not getting okay. enough blood back through the heart that makes sense so that that's a so those are the scenarios so but generally when we're talking about congestive heart failure we're talking about the heart that has plenty of uh, volume and it fills very well but it's lost the ability to move that blood forward. And usually mm -hmm. that's associated with decreased contractility. So Jordan's right in that aspect. So generally speaking, okay. Um, Which is why also... Pimobendin is the drug of choice. <laughs> right, Pimobendin is an amazing drug and we are very, very fortunate to have it in veterinary medicine. Yeah. So one of the things that, I think is very useful to understand is going back a step to basic cardiac anatomy. It's useful to think of the circulatory system as two pumps in series, meaning one feeds the other. Mm -hmm. So 
if you think about the whole cir circulation, if blood comes in, we'll start with the right side because I just talked about tamponade. If normal volume of blood is coming back to the heart, comes back to the right atrium, through the right ventricle, out the pul pulmonary artery, and then all that volume comes back to the left atrium, left ventricle, and out the aorta. So you have the right ventricle feeding blood through the lungs into the left, and you have the left ventricle feeding blood through the body back to the right. So two pumps in series. Mm -hmm. Right. Does that right. make sense? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, if I have two pumps in series and one of them fails, then I'm not going to be moving as much blood forward. And then the question is, where does the blood go if it's not going forward? Well, the mm -hmm. blood is made up of more than one thing, right? It's cells and it's fluid. Mm -hmm. The cells stay in the, in the cir circulation, but the fluid will leave. So if my left ventricle is not moving blood forward out into the body and the volume begins to back up in the left atrium and pulmonary veins, the body tries to reduce some of that fluid in the circulatory system and make it easier for the heart to work. And that fluid crosses the cell membranes and you get pulmonary edema. And actually it's really cool because we know how much pressure it takes to cause pulmonary edema in dogs. And the magic number is 24 millimeters of mercury. If you have oh, 24 wow. millimeters of mercury of pressure in your pulmonary veins, then fluid will start to weep out of the vascular space into the interstitial space. Hmm. Right. That's interesting. That's, like it's, this is how I think of it is it's 24. And then when we like, let's say we have a patient intubated, you know, we don't want to go above 20 and it's just yeah. kind of interesting that it's like so similar that yeah. it's like, you don't want to go above 20, but okay. For the most part, there are instances where you might need to go above, but that's, we're, not, we're not talking that right now, <laughs> right. but it's cool oh. that it's like 24 and then it backs up into the lungs. Like that's, that's really cool. Yeah. And, and that's assuming that your protein is normal. If you're hyperproteinemic, right. If you're hyperproteinemic, it's even less pressure because you don't yeah. have the oncotic pressure keeping the fluid in the vessels right and we so see that with our like ple dogs so that's yes. what like in internal medicine like that's yeah yeah we get that <laughs> yeah so so keeping the pressures below that magic threshold is what your atria try and do in the face of heart disease so if we take a really simple scenario let's start with some something easy Let's start with valve disease. So if I'm a small breed dog and I, my valve degenerates as they are wont to do, and I develop mild mitral regurgitation, the body's response to that to protect the lungs from that increase in pressure that's coming through the mitral valve from the left ventricle is it dilates. So mm -hmm. that's where we get left atrial enlargement. And the whole point is to try to huh. preserve, is to preserve the end diastolic pressure in the pul pulmonary veins to keep them from developing edema. Oh, so essentially, kind of, kind of the goal. Essentially, the heart will damage itself to protect the lungs. <laughs> yes. yes, because wow. the other thing that it wants to do is that the heart really wants to main, maintain the blood blood pressure. Yeah, and. You got to remember that when the volume goes back in the left atrium, it also turns around and goes back in the left ventricle. So now yeah. what do we have? We have effectively mm. enhanced preload. Mm. Oh, okay. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So as things progress and more volume is going back, well, the left atrium dilates even more. Mm -hmm. And if the volume is not moving out into forward cir circulation, the left ventricle will start to dilate. Mm -hmm. That's where we in oh. introduce pemobendin. As this thing progresses on, 
the body detects, hey, and it's usually in the kidneys, like, I'm not getting enough blood pressure, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. the ventricle is now having a harder time moving blood forward. Yeah. So what's the body do? Well, oh. the kidneys stimulate RAS. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yes. Yvonne's a step ahead. I was of like, dun, 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 dun. <laughs> exactly. So now we get huh. stimulation in the renin angiotensin aldosterone system, right? Which does what? It preserves volume mm-hmm, because right. the body thinks, oh, I have, we don't have enough pressure. fluid. We must not have enough volume. So let me save some volume. So RAS is great for acute trauma, but it's maladaptive in the face of heart failure. And so we get more and more volume added to the system, added to the system as the body tries to maintain blood pressure, Mm. right? Because blood pressure needs to be managed at all costs and the kidneys will do everything they can to make themselves happy. So- Ultimately, we get so much volume in the system that the ventricle can't handle it anymore. So now the atrias are dilated or the atria is dilated, the ventricle is dilated, and it's so stretched that the myofibrils don't function as well as they used to. They started to lose some of their contractility. And then all that fluid backs up and you get congestion. Now we have congestive heart failure. So that's the- Which is which makes sense that the, the, we use Lasix then at that point, right? Because right. we want to get the fluid out because the RAS system has been mm-hmm. stimulated. So we need to kind of override that, which is why we monitor our kidney values super closely. Right, because- Because the- Hemostasis. Love it. Erosamide. Makes the kidneys work harder, right? Because it's moving, it's mm-hmm. working at the loop of Henle to pull fluid out. Interesting, right? Lasix yeah. doesn't actually remove fluid from the lungs. What it does is it removes fluid from circulation so that the fluid Which in the, the lungs can move back load. into circulation. Mm-hmm. Now, actually, right? it's, it's still reducing preload. Okay. It's still reducing preload because if I want to reduce afterload, I have to either vasodilate or vasoconstrict. So, oh, okay, that makes so sense. Here's a real easy way to think about, right. You have to think about afterload after as a pressure load on the heart, not a right. volume load. So afterload is, a, is effectively in all the patients with normal circulation, just systemic vascular resistance. So if you va- vasoconstrict, afterload goes up. If you vasodilate, afterload goes down. Interesting. So, That's so, like choosing the nozzle size on your um, on your on your water. Right. What a- hose? <laughs> Is this what you're trying <laughs> you know, to say? You know the handle. You know what I'm. Yeah, yeah, the hose nozzle. Hose nozzle. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so. I know what breeds I specifically think of with this disease, but what breeds do you guys commonly see? I mean, like my brain goes to Cavaliers, but (laughs) Cavaliers, Maltese. Exactly. Yorkies, Chihuahuas. So I think, I think I went through, through this before, um, what we affectionately refer to as the rule of Bonagura. If you can pick the dog up with one hand, it's probably yeah. going to get valve disease. If it takes two hands <laughs> right. or a friend, it's probably going to get the dilated cardiomyopathy. <laughs> Cocker right. spaniels are right in the middle. You can almost get them with one hand, but you kind of need that sec- second one for support. They act- a- actually present with both. Of course they do. <laughs> so if we're talking valve disease, we're talking small breed dogs um, most commonly. Now, that's not to say that large breed dogs don't get valvular degeneration. They absolutely do. And and we do see dogs that are quote unquote large breed dogs that will have age related valvular degeneration. Mm -hmm. Um, But as far as a primary disease that sends them into heart failure, it's usually going to be dilated cardiomyopathy. Hmm. And so... Dilated cardiomyopathy is it, it, the 
the end result is the same, but the path to get there is different. So rather than Mm -hmm. the valve leaking and then blood pressure going down and the body retaining fluid to try to keep blood pressure up, what we have is a primary loss of contractility. So blood pressure goes down and then the body retains fluid to try to increase blood pressure. And then you get a volume loaded heart that doesn't contract well. And again, Mm -hmm. fluid backs up and then you get edema in the tissues leading to the ventricle that is failing. And this is actually where I was trying to head is if we're talking about DCM, you could have either side be more affected. Primarily it's the left, but that being said, boxers are that arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy and they do get more primary right-sided disease Mm, but i'm trying to go back a step yeah before i get off here (laughs) we're talking about the fundamentals of congestive heart failure you can predict where the fluid is going to go based on the ventricle that's failing oh it's the vessels yeah the vessels that lead to that ventricle will be the ones that get volume loaded and you'll get edema. Mm -hmm. So in the case of the failing left ventricle, it presents as pulmonary edema for the most part. Mm -hmm. Because it's backing up into the lungs. It's backing up into the lungs, right? Because the veins are coming back from the lungs. Yeah. In the case of right heart failure, and we actually differentiate the two, in the mm-hmm. terms of right heart failure, you're going to start getting organomegaly in the abdominal organs, mm-hmm. and you're going to get ascites. Because right. it's backing up into the body. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and this is like where we see on ultrasound, where we see like the vessels going to the, especially the liver and the spleen. Are just yeah, like, they're huge. Right. And we're like, oh, something's not right. And it's the other side of this. Yeah. And then you briefly take a peek at the heart and you're like, oh, the heart's like barely moving. (laughs) And then of course you can have biventricular failure where both ventricles are failing (sighs) at the same time. And then you get bicavitary effusion. Exactly. Well, Mm -hmm. you get pulmonary edema and you get ascites. Yeah. Right. And so, so far, I think it's fair to say the caveat is we've spoken primarily about how congestive heart failure presents in the dog. Of course, it's going to be different. <laughs> this in is the very cat. true. Of course, I forgot. Right. I forgot about the cats. Cat, exactly. Very, totally different. Cat, cats are slightly different. Um, cats, because of the way their pulmonary parenchyma drains back to the heart, they actually will develop not only pulmonary edema, but they can get pleural effusion as a result of heart, heart failure, which is mm. very rare in dogs. Dogs rarely develop pleural effusion from heart, heart failure. It's usually related to some, something else. Right. Um, they also will get pericardial effusion, which is different than dogs. Dogs don't develop pericardial effusion as a result of heart failure, generally speaking. The caveat mm. to that is if they have very, very high pulmonary hypotension they may develop a small amount of effusion but for the most Mm. part you think pulmonary edema and ascites in dogs depending on which side it is um and in cats you can have pulmonary edema pleural effusion pericardial effusion and then the same thing ascites and and that's not to say that there are not instances where you can get other effusions related to heart failure, but as a broad term, those are the, what you're going to see most often. Wow. Cool. Cats. So so for these patients though, especially, I mean, since we're on the top of cats, how do, how are they going to present in practice? Um, since cats can kind of do whatever they want. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, dyspnea. (laughs) Well, aside from dyspnea, So cats actually present with one of two things, both of which are horrible. I'll just Mm. say that right away. Both of which are horrible. So uh, Jordan, you're an ER tech, yes? 
No, I'm an IM tech, but we okay. do a lot of ER. Okay. For some reason, I, th I, I thought you worked in the ER prim primarily. Mm -hmm. Okay. But you both have seen this, I know. So yeah. you have cats come in and they mm -hmm. either can't breathe or they can't walk. Yeah. Yes. Because right? cats don't get so syncope, true. really. Like um, they can, but it's pretty rare. Yeah. Interesting. It can't. They, they. It does happen, but it, it is actually pretty rare. Yeah, they so either come super cat, dysnic, yeah, or right, they can't. They walk. come in super super dysnic, or they present with um, aortic throm thromboembolism, yeah, and those are the yeah. two manifest two manifestations of heart failure in cats, and. You know, we're, we're pretty lucky now um, that every practice has some sort of ultrasound machine. Yeah. I remember yeah. a time when virtually no one had an <laughs> ultrasound machine. Right. Right. And if you did, and, it was like the grainiest thing ever. And you're like, ah, it could be an organ. <laughs> you know what? I actually remember when there was no two dimensional picture that all you got was <sighs> M mode. Mm. Oh, wow. I, I actually remember those those days. So Ugh. to me, I think this is like magic. <laughs> it is magic. I totally agree. <laughs> but what would happen back in the day was these cats would come in with heart failure and the veterinarian would say, oh, I wonder if he's got pleural effusion. And they would rush him into x-ray and stretch mm. the cat out and they would code and die. Mm -hmm. yeah and so we would tell people when we would do these seminars is if you suspect your cat has pleural effusion related to heart failure because they can't breathe they're presenting with that paradoxical breathing where it's all abdominal as they're trying to pull their diaphragm down just stick a needle in in their chest the mm -hmm. worst thing you're going to do is get nothing and then you're going to give them their treatment and put them in oxygen but we would tell people all the time, yeah. just tap, just tap their chest, get the fluid out and worry about your x-rays later. Yeah. And I think that's a really good point is, um, I think there's a lot of, of doctors cause it's, I mean, we don't, we don't order the x-rays. I think there's a lot of doctors who say I need to know first before we treat. And it's like, Yes, most of the times that's appropriate, but when we're talking about these respiratory because of heart disease, like you definitely can do more damage by taking an x-ray. Well, like let's stabilize sure. them. They're, let's stabilize before we double check. And, you know, and the beauty <laughs> you know? now is where I was headed with this is we have ultrasound. Mm -hmm. so, and so you can just put the probe come on. in you stick oxygen on the cat's face you stick a probe on their chest yep he's got a fusion tap it then stick yeah. him in the ox oxygen and give him trust the other thing to remember and i think people forget about this well i don't know maybe maybe not is that if you suspect a patient is in heart failure and you give them a dose of furosemide and they turn out to have a normal heart and just re respiratory disease you have not done any serious damage, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> One dose of furosemide. I mean, unless they are in awful renal failure, then that would be, you know, really bad. But generally like you can get away with a dose of furosemide, get them stabilized, mm -hmm. get them in oxygen and then sort, sort it out from there. And we do see that, you know, cause we see a lot of cardiac emergencies and sometimes they come in and it's not actually heart failure it might be more pulmonary hypertension. And mm. then the furosemide is not really doing them any favors, um, right. but giving them a dose is not going to be a horrible event. And actually, um, believe it or not, furosemide does have some bron bronchodilator effect. So it actually, a lot of people will report, mm. well, he's doing better. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> That must be the, the, yeah. Oh. Now dogs oh, can present huh. with like syncope and coughing and ascites, yeah. which is less urgent than a cat and heart failure. <laughs> well, let's just say this, that cats almost never cough with heart, heart failure. Interesting. The cats right. coughing has probably got res respiratory disease. Respiratory, they present, yeah. yeah. They present with dys dysmia or a thrombus. 
Um, good old cats just hiding it until cats. they're dying. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And then your dogs, yeah, they can come in just straight up heart failure. They can have syncope. They can have increased coughing. They can have dys- dyspnea. I have actually seen patients come in heart failure that came in before vomiting and diarrhea, even though it's rare. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was one of our patients that came in heart failure. It came in for just general, like ADR, lethargy, vomiting, diarrhea. Yeah. And then on x-ray, they saw like hepatomegaly. And so they were worried about a liver tumor. And when we ultrasounded it, it had extremely dilated vessels, didn't have any ascites or um, pulmonary effusion yet. But the heart, like when we peeked at the heart, because the abdomen was generally normal, aside from extremely dilated vessels and um, a very, very large liver, we peeked at the heart and it was just like, it was just like barely moving. And then then you got an answer. Yeah. And I think what happens is when you get that fluid buildup, you get uh, fluid retention in the GI tract. And then they start to have di- diarrhea because it's not getting moved out in the yeah, normal way. Yeah, yeah, because it's not so, being absorbed yeah. properly. Yeah, but that's, that's nowhere but to that's go. Not, it's not the tip, typical print. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Usually right, it's, yeah. they come in blue and... Um, yeah. But then, you know, then you move into, okay, well, we've got a patient with suspect a heart failure. What are we going to do about that, right? Um, and... The good news is that the treatment is pretty much the same for everybody. Right. The, num- the number one rule is they are fragile. Treat them gently, carefully. Don't get them stressed out. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the mantra used to be phone, furosemide, oxygen, and nit- nitroglycerin paste. We mm-hmm. don't use mm-hmm. the nitroglycerin paste as much I- anymore, but the furosemide and the o- oxygen are like absolutes. You got to do yeah. that. Um, yeah. And- we find it too. Like when, back when we used to work in the same building um, as an, with an ER, like I feel like it, it gets missed because it's an emergency situation. You give furosemide, you throw the pet in oxygen. Um, and so you're just kind of like, high strung and just trying to keep the pet alive but like it's important to give those pets water so that we yes. can maintain their kidneys um now yeah, particularly these patients, if you're giving them furosemide yeah exactly but it, yeah. i feel like it it's one of those things that gets overlooked pretty quickly just because you're trying to save the pet not realizing well, and i think i think people think of it paradoxically right you're like exactly. i'm trying to get the fluid out why would i give them the fluid to take in yeah and that's that understanding the preload and afterload kind yeah. of concept and understanding and so that the kidneys that are working helps. super hard <laughs> right yeah. um exactly. kidneys don't understand what's really happening <laughs> no 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 the kidneys are like on the other side of the coast and they're like oh i just need to do my job and like <laughs> what do you and mean you things going? changed <laughs> yeah but like because we know not to give iv fluids but i think that it just gets missed tonight to like just shove them in oxygen and not really give them a bowl of water too but those patients are going to be drinking and, and wanting to drink and i, I just right I particularly think if you've given reminder. them particularly if you've given them IV furosemide, they're probably going to urinate within about 20 minutes and then they're going to be yeah. thir- thirsty. Yeah. And that's okay. That's okay because when they drink, it's still got to make it through the absorption process and then get fil- filtered through. Yeah. Um, but you're still going to clear the lungs out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Unless the they have like concurrent renal disease with their heart failure, which we see in cats a lot. And then we're trying to monitor urine output and we're like, come on, come on, you can do it. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, and, you know, I think that you have to separate the acute phase from the, the chronic. Yeah. Right? Mm. When they come in acutely, then yes, you're just going to get the furosemide in them, get their lungs cleared out. And then once they're more stable, you're going to try to balance the ins and outs. Yeah. Yeah. Right. In the initial onset, it's going to be furosemide, oxygen, and leave them alone. Okay. Um, using things like butorphanol, 
mm-hmm. are actually a really good idea because they are stressed mm-hmm. out and giving them something to calm them down is very useful. Particularly if they've come in and they're a cat that's thrown a clot, they might actually need a pure mu agonist because they're probably in yeah. pain. No, oh, yeah. Extremely painful. The yeah. other point I want to be sure I get out there because I know we're running short here is um, we're all taught the mantra, put in the largest catheter you can possibly get in your patient. Heart failure patients are the exception to that rule because I'm not going to be giving them resuscitation shock doses of fluids. I yeah. need vascular access for giving drugs through. So to make everybody's life easier, particularly the pet, I will go ahead and use a smaller gauge catheter that I would normally use if I was doing anesthesia. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We work in internal medicine. We get it. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, Yeah. I think everybody else, it, it is very much, you know, the, the reason we go with that big bore is because we worry about doing like CPR and needing to fluid resuscitate and cardiac, you're not, you're not doing fluid resuscitation. I was (laughs) was thinking about this the other day I don't remember the last time I put in an 18 gauge catheter. Really? I really don't like I it's, it's definitely been over six months. I actually do. It was a, it was a golden retriever with pericardial effusion. Oh yeah. Cause you do need to fluid resuscitate. Right. Pericardial effusion is the, is the exception to all these other cardiac rules we've been talking (laughs) Mm -hmm. about. Right. Cause they have. Well, shoot, knock on wood. I haven't seen a pericardial effusion in a hot minute. (laughs) They have reduced preload and furosemide in the case of pericardial effusion is exactly the wrong thing to do. Correct. Make things worse. They need a large pore catheter and they need shock doses of fluids. So yeah. it's, I think it's very important to remember to think about what you're dealing with. Um, yeah. And then once you, know, once you get them stabilized and you get them where they can breathe on room air again, then you can start adding in your other medications. Uh, our cardiologist will actually start the heart failure drugs on Pemobendin immediately as soon as they're stable enough to come out to have a pill poke, poke down the throat. Because we know right. that Pemobendin is so helpful with these, these dogs. I really so, wish they made it just about half the size would be great. <laughs> well, honestly, we get a lot of our Pemobendin as a compounded tiny tablet. You're doing that. Yeah. yeah. So it's a little, little tiny, tiny tablet and we can use that. And it's absolutely yeah. as effective so we actually have a lot of op- options and they do make a, That's great. a, they do make an injectable form of, of Pemobendin now. I just have oh. not had the op- opportunity to use it, oh, but I know other, I know other cardio v- VTSs who think it's like the greatest thing since sliced. Well, it's gotta be like it a saving grace. Amazing. Like you give <laughs> injectable furosemide and then you give injectable Pimo. Yeah. Yeah. Like in an emergency like most situation. Of these animals- are going to be they're struggling to breathe right so why would we want to shove a giant pill in them you mean they don't want to eat, it, usually not gonna eat it themselves yeah <laughs> so injectable pimo sounds brilliant <laughs> yeah, it really does so i think that understanding where how how you get to heart failure virtually all heart disease can lead to heart failure so mm-hmm. treating heart failure is a big part of it and it really fundamentally, it doesn't even matter what the cause is. The treatment is going to be the same. You need to improve oxygenation. You need to clear the fluid out of the lungs to make that better. Or if they have a lot of ascites, you might actually just tap them and make it easier for for them to breathe. And that improves oxygenation. So you have to think about Mm -hmm. your goals. You're gonna improve oxygenation. You're going to eliminate fluid that's making it hard to oxygenate. You're going to do things that are going to calm stress and you're going to increase blood pressure and contractility. Mm-hmm. So furosemide, oxygen, pemobendin. And then when we start talking chronic therapy, then you get start adding in um, 
ACE inhibitors that are going to suppress the RAS system. And you can add in spironolactone that is a di diuretic, but it also helps the heart re remodel more back to normal. Mm -hmm. And if you're a cat that's starting to clot, you're going to get some clop clopidogrel. So you have all right. these more chronic things that you can do to manage, but in that acute setting, it's all the same. It's furosemide and oxygen and keep keep them calm and quiet until they stabilize yeah yeah sweet and I think that's I mean that's really important too when we're talking to clients is to to get them to understand that too right like during this acute phase we just need to stabilize them and then when we're talking chronic, you know hopefully you've got a cardiologist involved <laughs> but you know that the, the that we are going to long-term, right? And I think, cause we talked about, and Ed, you're going to have to remind me because there was the different, the different levels. Oh, the A, B, C's and D's. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I was trying to tell my boss about this. <laughs> yeah. I'm okay. like, oh. So, so remind uh, us again, cause, yeah, cause I, we talked about quick. it for a second. <laughs> so basically um, it works like this. A's are dogs that are because of their breed, predisposed to developing heart disease of some kind. So cap, Cavaliers, Do Dobermans. Mm -hmm. um, then you have the Bs, and these are dogs that have structural changes that reflect heart disease, but are not in heart failure. Okay. And then you have the C, stage C, these are dogs that are actively in heart failure. So what we've been talking about today are the dogs who have become stage C. Got and it. then stage D are the end stage, what they define as refractory to therapy cases. So these are the ones right. that are chronically back in every two weeks for med adjustment, right? And this then, is, uh, that list, is, what is... That's heart disease specifically. It's ABCD. It's, it's yeah. It's ABCD. It's primarily for valvular heart heart disease. Okay. But but the other heart heart diseases will will fit in into it rough, roughly as well. Okay. And now, cool. it's worth mentioning that there's a very important line between in the B. The B gets separated into B one and B two. Mm. B one are dogs who are the ones that have mild re regurgitation of their valve and have some, maybe some mild left atrial enlargement, but otherwise their hearts are normal. And the B2 are the ones that they have a little more regurgitation, but the key point is that their left ventricles are now dilated. And I don't mean mm -hmm. it has to be like giant dilated, but there's a normal range. And if you move right. outside of that normal range, then we know your heart is starting to remodel to be able to compensate, to keep the blood, blood pressure up. And that's where we start the PMO bending. Ah, got it. Okay. That's why it's so, that's why that's such a key concept is if you're B1, there's no benefit to PMO bending. And the only way to answer that question is with an echocardiogram. If we do the echocardiogram and your left ventricle is now dilated, your B2 and pemobendin will keep you from getting to C longer than if you didn't have it. Mm. You don't necessarily need pemobendin like right off the bat. No. Because I feel like that gets thrown out there like the first sign of a murmur. A absolutely. <laughs> oh, and that's, yes. not, that's not really the correct use of it. And while there's no blatant contraindication to it other mm -hmm. than you spent the client's money unnecessarily <laughs> um it does make them less receptive to it once Ooh. they've crossed over once into they're... that b2 i see and, i see and it's so a, it's almost you know, like their heart gets used to it and then yes okay. and then it takes more to get the beneficial effect once they've gone on so they're not they're not pemo virgins <laughs> and oh. you know so if you go into heart failure and you're a pemo virgin then you respond very well to it if you got thrown on 
chemo bend in prematurely and then you rupture a cord, well, then when we change it, it's, we have to add more, more to it to get a beneficial right. effect. So the recommendation is if you hear a murmur, get an echo, determine your stage. And then if you're B1, you get an echo every year till you cross over to B2, you start on hemobendin, then you get an echo every six months. Now it's inevitable that at ah, some point you're going to cross yeah. from B1 to B2. Not necessarily. Okay. Hmm. Most commonly, but not necessarily. We have some dogs that have been a stable B1 for a couple of years. Hmm. Hmm. And I mean, it is a positive inotrope. So it does make the heart work a lot harder when it doesn't necessarily ha have to. So there mm -hmm. are times that, that yeah, we that makes sense. Off, off of it when they come in. Nice. So right. the, fi cool. the final, Love it. the final tidbit I'll put out here is, so for your chronic heart failure therapy, it's what they call triple or quad quad therapy now. So if your patient's in long-term heart failure, they're going to get a diuretic like furosemide. They're going to get pemobendin. They're going to get an ACE inhibitor if their kidneys will tolerate it. And they're going to get spironolactone because of its aldosterone-modulating mo effects. Now, do you... It's so funny because I fill medications for our cardio department all the time, and I'm like, yep, that's the combo that I see almost all the time. Yeah. <laughs> but um, furosemide specifically could be removed, or should it be removed if, if a patient's stable and not leaking? So what we do with the furosemide is we will dial it down to the lowest effective dose, effective level. Right? Okay. And occasionally patients sense. will come off of it, but almost invariably they will go back on it sometime later. Mm -hmm. Kind of depends on what the underlying disease is. Yeah. So the patients that come off of it are the ones who've rup ruptured a cord. Mm-hmm most commonly because then after they compensate then they basically go back to a b b2 effect effectively mm -hmm. but we have okay. the clients keep the medication because to have on hand are, in case right they're probably going to go back into heart failure at some point in the future i see i see and you do spironolactone and furosemide together yes we do um spironolactone is a is a much weaker diuretic mm -hmm. um but it has these really great benefits for cardiac re remodeling. So I see. we get a little bit of a double whammy. The other thing is it's a little easier on the kidneys. It's um, yeah. known as, as potassium sparing. So it, the patients don't lose potassium as much. Um, right. So one of the things we'll do is if we can dial down the furosemide and then use that little bit of spironolactone, we can be a little kinder to the kid kidneys. Nice. Love it. I, I will have to say that I'm very lucky. My, my cardiologist is exceptionally good at management of pa patients and heart, heart failure. Mm -hmm. um, while she's done the cool interventions and things like that, her primary career has been really fine tuning the management of oral therapy and chronic heart, heart failure. And she's extremely good at it extremely I feel I feel like that's definitely what the cardiologist that I that I worked with like that was one thing that I mean that was like his I'm gonna say bread and butter like appointments you know like I feel like internal medicine is probably kidney failure um right. but but I feel like that is that is probably the most common thing that he would deal with yes he would do interventional stuff but you know that was a few times a year that we were doing surgery um, but yeah, most of it was managing these, these, you know, chronic heart disease patients and, and, and everything came in for murmurs and, you know, <laughs> it was like, cool. All right. We got a murmur. Let's work it yeah. out. So yeah. Interesting. Huh. It's the tip of the week. Oxygen and lace or furosemide. And water <laughs> and a bowl of water. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That, that's what I want the tip of the week to be. <laughs> there you go. I completely agree. <laughs> and now for the question of the week. 
I'm trying to think if there's been ever like a large breed dog where I've seen just congestive heart failure. <laughs> so, like, I can't think of one off the top of my head of like a heart failure, you, large breed dog. It's the Dobermans. Yeah. It's the Dobermans. Yeah. They'll, they'll, they'll be, they'll, the Dobermans will get you. They will pretend to be cats. <laughs> nice. <laughs> So what so happens true. is they will hide their disease. If the, and this doesn't happen so much now because people screen, but it used to be really common for us to have a Doberman come in that had never been seen by a cardiologist, never had an echo, comes in and full-blown <sighs> failure. Um, <sighs> and their hearts are barely moving at all. And they quite literally have weeks to a couple of months of life left left in them. Nice. So those are the dogs that you, that you see now. Most Doberman people are much more aware now, and they do a lot mm-hmm. of screening. And they um, there is a a stage in Doberman cardiomyopathy um, that it, it would be effectively B two, but they call it the occult stage where. They have no signs or symptoms. They're running around the yard, acting happy, healthy, wonderful, normal dogs. There's no syncope. They're doing fantastic. But when you measure them, they have some degree of reduced contractility. Hmm. Those dogs get started on Pimobendin early because we've shown that it extends that disease-free period. So they hmm. are effectively a, B, a B2, wow. even though it's not valve disease per se. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. That makes sense. Interesting. Cool. Um, cool. For people who want to do more reading about when to start Pima Bendin, here's the, the, two, the two studies that you want to go look up. For the valve disease dogs, it's a study called the EPIC trial, E-P-I-C. And that's the one that we used that showed the benefit of Pima Bendin. The other one for Dobermans, the early start of Pima, is called the PROTECT trial. P-R-O-T-E-C-T. Yeah, apparently if you're going to run a study, you got to have a clever name. Right? (laughs) I'll put those those studies in the show notes too so that way everybody can see them. Um, Yeah, we'll we'll see if we can find the links. They're super easy to find and I'm pretty sure that both of them are now open use because it is life-saving information. Mm. Interesting. Nice, nice. Very cool. I learned a lot this week. Maybe the question of the week should be like, what did you learn about CHF this week? There we go. Because we probably all learned something. Let's be real. I mean, I learned something every week. (laughs) I very much enjoy this, ladies. Yeah, it's super fun. And then um, I think we have another one next week. Okay, so what do we have coming up? We've got next week is PDA, which is super cool because I can actually talk about that. Which is I can't fun. talk about like the surgery part of that, but I can talk about <laughs> like when we see it in puppies and we're like, oh my oh. God, <laughs> send it to cardio. Yeah. 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 Um, we're like, holy crap, but bye. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then we've got valve disease, which we touched on this week. And then uh, we'll, I think we'll round out our cardiology series with DCM. Um, yeah. Which will be, which will be cool. Cause I know that was such a hot topic in the last couple of years. So, and we're and still, funny. we're still learning stuff. So. All right. Well, I look forward to the next couple of weeks of learning. Um, and yeah. then I hope everybody continues to get your learn on. Don't forget to check out the membership site and get your um, discount code VETTECH20. And don't forget to keep an ear out for us on the Vet Tech Cafe and listen for our big news that we have coming up. Well, we'll probably share that in the next couple weeks. Um, yeah, I would say maybe the next episode we might talk about it. Yeah. Sneak it in. We'll get, we got to finalize some stuff, but yes. yes. <laughs> I hope everybody has a good week and we will talk to you next week. Thanks, guys. All right. Bye, guys. Thanks, Ed. We'll Bye. see you next weekend. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you like what you heard, we'd love for you to share with someone you think might enjoy the podcast. 
and make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Want to give us a boost? Please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher, and we'll be sure to say thank you. Find out everything about us at internalmedicineforvettechs.com. Talk to you next week. Bye.